This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. The day after Pastor Asher called and asked if I would preach this Wednesday evening, I began praying about a message that would be relevant, practical, timely, but most importantly, biblical in its approach. And because this is a specific crowd, one that lends itself to desiring the strong meat, because you are of full age and have your senses exercised to discern both good and evil, I believe the Lord was laying on my heart the burden to bring before the church a topic that would help us wrestle with our place in the culture that surrounds us. The Bible's clear that we are not to adopt the practices of this present world. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. But we also know that we have not yet been taken out of this world. So how do we be in the world, but not of it? How do we sanctify ourselves through truth so that as not to learn to do after the abominations of those nations around us? Are we to be isolationists? Who should just hunker down and endure as perilous times shall come? Are we pessimists if we realize that those perilous times must necessarily come before the return of our Lord? Do we just desire persecution to prove that we are living godly? How do we live in this world? How do we interact with our culture? This evening, we're going to consider only one aspect of that culture and how I believe the Bible tells us to respond to it. I believe the Holy Spirit has gently prodded me using my own curiosity and inquiry to explore perhaps one of the most profound influences on our culture. And therefore, it is influencing Christians. By that, I mean the culture is under duress by a particular ideology, and our churches are being influenced by the culture, meaning our churches are transitively influenced by this ideology. April 20th was a momentous day in our nation. The day may have come and gone, and perhaps for you, you thought little about it. But you may recall that it was April 20th that a jury found Derek Chauvin a former Minneapolis police officer guilty of the murder of George Floyd. Now, I do not need to relay the, to you the social upheaval that occurred across our nation since May 25, 2020, when Derek Chauvin pressed his knee on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes during that fatal arrest in Minneapolis. No doubt you recall the tension, the chaos, the disorder that occurred almost daily for months afterward. Cities were burned. National treasures were desecrated. Innocent businessmen and women lost their livelihoods, and some lost their lives, all in the name of protest. Meanwhile, while many of our cities were in flames, our nation, our world, was also grappling with a global pandemic that has left us with more questions than answers. Questions on the scope and severity of a disease that came crashing into the world scene and has lingered now for more than a year. While thousands have died and politicians have used it for political gain, we have asked ourselves where this virus really did come from. What is its real threat? When is it going to leave 
so we can repair to some sort of normalcy. And while we have grappled with these issues, no ethical stone has been left unturned from should the government for the sake of health and safety require churches to go virtual to mandating the wearing of masks to the not-so-subtle nudge towards vaccination in an overt practice of libertarian paternalism. If you're not aware of libertarian paternalism, it's the idea that your freedom of choice has not been violated. That's the libertarian piece, even though the government has campaigned to manipulate your behavior towards a desired action. They are being paternal. And all of these issues have had their effect on us, even within the church. Over the past year, Christians have developed some dogmatic opinions that has caused many uh, to turn on each other, hurling accusations of being too fearful or being too cavalier, being sheeple or being anarchists, of being far-right conspiracy theorists, or being far-left fact-checkers. And these fissures, these cracks in our fellowship are not merely affecting the church at large, but they do affect us here even at Good News in Chesapeake. They've affected how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, how we have ministered to each other, how we've edified and encouraged each other over the past year. This is our cultural climate. COVID, mass shootings, gun control, climate change, student debt forgiveness, universal health care, voter fraud, election fraud, intersectionality, Black Lives Matter, the 1619 Project, LGBTQ+, transgenderism, extremism, Antifa, alt-right, defund the police, systemic racism, pro-life, pro-choice, opioid epidemics, Democrats, Republicans. I could go on and on with the laundry list of issues and identities that many of us would find we fall at various parts of the spectrum. But who's right? Who's wrong? And what does the Bible tell us about living in this culture of chaos? In 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6, we have the blueprint for how we engage with our culture. The Bible says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. Ye are of God little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God Heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this evening, we're going to try the spirits. We are going to endeavor to identify some false prophets. 
We are going to look at some ideologies that may appear to be the spirit of truth, but they are actually masking the spirit of error. So let me start by asking some questions. How many of you own a Bible? Good. If you have a Bible, would you hold it up? If you own a Bible, but you forgot it this evening, hold your hand up with it. And for our purposes here this evening, we'll also include those electronic Bibles on which so many of us have come to rely. So if your Bible this evening is an app on an iPhone or an iPad or is on a tablet or is an electronic in some way, you can hold your hand up too. How many of you have access to a Bible? Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, by raising your hand... How many of you would admit you have a Facebook page? All right, we've got some honest brokers. How many have an Instagram account? A LinkedIn page? A parlor handle? There we go. We've got the red states here. How many of you have an account of some sort on some sort of social platform? Now, I'm going to ask you a question, please. Do not. Raise your hand. How many of you have spent more time on social media platform today than you have spent reading, studying, or meditating on the Word of God? Please don't answer that. And I'm not really trying to gimmick you into spending more time in the Word than with social media, though that would be beneficial. I just want to draw your attention to the amount of time that we spend on social media. In fact, many of us have spent more time on social media than what we have spent even on eating or even our personal hygiene. Studies show that we spend an average, Americans spend an average of 144 minutes per day on social media. There are certain demographics that take that average high and some bring it back down. This means that for a person who begins using social media at the age of 10 and lives to be 72 years old, the average lifespan, that person will spend 3,462,390 minutes using social media. That's 57,706 and a half hours, or 2,404 days, or more than six and a half years of that person's life on social media. Meanwhile, a current study shows that adults who read the Bible daily, roughly 9% of Americans, read an average of 40 minutes per day. So if you are in the 9% who are reading the Bible daily, and you are keeping the average 40 minutes per day, and if you began reading at 10 years of age and lived to 72, you would spend 905,200 minutes reading the Bible. That's 15,086 hours, 620 days, or one and a half years. So what is of greater influence on our lives? Social media or the Word of God? Again, I really am not trying to guilt you into... To, reading the Word of God, I just want to draw your attention to the magnificent influence that social media has on us. It is part of our lives. 
And if it is part of our lives and we are middle-aged, can you imagine the influence it is having on our children who are engaged in social media at a younger age than 10 and across many more platforms? And this does not include the influence of television, movies, internet, school, other cultural interactions. This is just social media. It has our attention. And because it has our attention, we are being daily immersed in the mores of our culture. And often it comes with some fairly benign and banal slogans. Consider these social justice slogans you may have heard recently, many of which are trending on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram right now. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Or think global, act local. We shall overcome. Here's another one. We are the 99%. Hashtag stay woke. System change, not climate change. Cancel student debt. This is just a small sampling of the social justice slogans out there. And perhaps some of them you might even agree with. Or maybe you don't agree with them, but you think they do not sound overtly wicked. Maybe they're just political posturing. Or, or should we judge each other for where we land on a political spectrum? Are we wrong if we voted Democrat? Are we righteous if we voted Republican? Are we more Christ-like if we lean left? Are we evil if we lean right? Well, tonight is not about politics. Even though that even though what we will consider has, a, has been highly politicized, both by the left and the right. Tonight, we are going to begin to pull a string that has led us to the cultural chaos that we are witnessing in our country. We're going to look at how identity politics, the cultural phenomenon of organizing groups based on their interlocking systems of oppression of gender, religion, race, ethnicity, age, social background, or class, has polarized our nation. Tonight, we are going to wrestle with the ideology that has ushered into our mainstream consciousness, social theories that have introduced us to such terminology as critical social justice, critical legal studies, critical race theory, post-colonial theory, feminism, intersectionality, transgenderism, queer theory, disability studies, and even fat studies. Yes, that is a thing. Tonight we are going to look at critical theory. Now, perhaps you have never heard of that social science I just mentioned. Perhaps post-colonial theory is a foreign concept to you. Or perhaps you can only chuckle when you can contemplate, really, what fat studies might be about. And perhaps you have never heard of the term critical theory that really encompasses them all. And though you may not be familiar with many of these so-called social sciences, I can guarantee you that you have interacted with them, at least tangentially. For these are the soft social scientists that are feeding agendas such as defund police, Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the concept, the Green New Deal, the Keystone Pipeline, college debt forgiveness, extremism stand-downs in the military, the Equality Act, reproductive rights, and so much more. 
But again, I assure you, I am not going to be political this evening. I only bring these up because they are what are before us this evening. I do not care how you voted in November, nor to which political party you belong or don't belong. I do care, though, when ideologies run counter to the counsel of God's word. When they change the truth of God into a lie. When those who espouse those ideologies profess to be wise, but their wisdom is foolishness with God. When they creep into the church unawares and turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and deny the Lord God and our Jesus Christ. I do care when these become spots in our feasts of charity when they threaten to wrinkle and tarnish his glorious church. Spots they are, and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings. So more importantly, yes, most importantly, we are going to consider a biblical response to this cultural chaos. We are going to look at critical theory and measure this parent ideology against Scripture and then let the Scripture discern whether such an ideology is true or is false. Tonight, I really want to do three things. Now, this is going to be a tremendous task, and I am tempted to capitulate and concede that I will not get to any resolution this evening. In fact, I don't think we'll get very far, and I may need to leave off to continue this topic and its ramifications in our contemporary culture for another time. But for tonight, if I leave you wanting to study more, specifically more about what the Bible has to say, then I will rest knowing I have done my job. But the three things I would like to do this evening are, one, introduce critical theory to you by providing a brief brief history of its origins. Two, I want to provide a basic overview of critical theory. And three, measure the theory against Scripture to answer two questions. Is the theory biblical? Does it have any redeeming qualities that we may be able to relate to Scripture? Or two, is it diametrically opposed altogether to biblical doctrine? Now, if we had the time, I would like to show you how critical theory has influenced our culture today. Unfortunately, we do not have that kind of time. Maybe, though, as we go along, you will be, we will be able to discern where this theory has influenced our cur- current cur- cultural thinking. And perhaps I can even assist by providing examples that I believe will leave no doubt of its influence. But we will begin with introducing critical theory. What exactly is it? Now, to adequately understand critical theory, we must go back to 1848, when a German philosopher with a thick black mane of hair, hairy hands, and crookedly buttoned frock coat, a man with no manners, proud and faintly contemptuous, with a sharp metallic voice, who was well-suited to the radical judgments he was continually delivering on men and things, wrote these famous words, the workers have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to gain. Workers of the world unite. This philosopher was Karl Marx. And it was the Communist Manifesto and his seminal work, Das Kapital, published in 1883, that codified for the first time critical theories about society, economics, and politics, collectively now understood as Marxism. And what was his fundamental thesis? that human societies develop through conflict, specifically class conflict. Within capitalism, this manifests itself in the conflict between the ruling classes, known as the proletariat, that control the means of production and the working classes, or the, the ruling classes known as the bourgeoisie, that control the means of production and the working classes known as the proletariat. 
that enabled these means by selling their labor in return for wages. It is Marxism's binary division of the oppressed, the proletariat, against the oppressor, the bourgeoisie, that birthed critical theory and introduced it into the modern conscience. Karl Marx has had a tremendous effect on how we think. He was a man who historian Paul Johnson claims, and I tend to agree, has had more impact on actual events as well as of minds of men and women than any other intellectual in modern time. The reason for this not primarily the attraction of his concepts and methodology, though both have a strong appeal to unrigorous minds, but the fact that his philosophy has been institutionalized in two of the world's largest countries, Russia and China, and many of their satellites. Paul Johnson wrote that in 1988. Where I depart from Paul Johnson, the historian, is in his assessment that the concepts and methodology are not the primary attraction. I believe this has changed in the last 20 to 30 years. Both the concepts and methodology of Marxism have become increasingly popular. And I think we can narrow this down, perhaps too simplistically, but adequately for our purposes this evening, to two reasons. One is a methodological reason, and the other is a conceptual reason. First, the methodological appeal of Marxism as a science. Or, perhaps better stated, the Marxist method of dealing with science has been adopted wholesale by critical theorists today. You'll recall that science, as a noun, is knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths. Specifically, it is how we develop these truths to establish general laws. Laws that have been tested through the scientific method, which is observe, question, research, hypothesis, experiment, analysis, conclusion. In summary, science must be observable and tested before conclusions can be made. Philosophy is not a science. And Marxism, by definition, is a philosophy and thus not a science. Let me read something again from Paul Johnson's keen insight. The notion that Marxism, Paul Johnson says, is a science, in a way that no other philosophy has ever been or could be, is implanted in the public doctrine of the states his followers founded, so that it colors the teaching of all subjects in their schools and universities. Remember the nations that were founded? China and Russia. He says it's, implant, it's, it's affected all their schools and universities. This has spilled over into the non-Marxist world. For intellectuals, especially academics, are fascinated by power. And the identification of Marxism with massive physical authority has tempted many teachers to admit Marxist science to their own disciplines, especially such inexact or quasi-exact subjects such as economics, sociology, history, and geography. I end the quote. Marx's science, here's what he said, has spilled over into the non-Marxist world, tempting many teachers to admit Marxist science to their own disciplines. This has been one of the greatest, actually the most dishonest contributions of Marxism to our current cultural consciousness that everything can and should be treated like a science. 
We will handle this more in detail in a few minutes. For now, I just want to point out the influence of the methodology of Marxism. The second appeal of Marxism for today is conceptual. Do you remember the fundamental thesis of Marxism I mentioned just moments ago? It is that human societies are developed through conflict, specifically class conflict. You may not know this, but Karl Marx was also a poet. Here's what he said in his poetic collection called Savage Songs. With intense pessimism about the human condition, hatred, a fascination with corruption and violence, suicide pacts, and pacts with the devil, a young Karl Marx wrote, We are chained, shattered, empty, frightened, eternally chained to this marble block of being. We are the apes of a cold god howling gigantic curses at mankind. This concept of class warfare has been adopted by today's critical theorists. Now, the Marxist concept of a binary condition of humanity separated into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed, is the fundamental precept of critical theory. Now, perhaps we should let Karl Marx describe this in his own words. In the Communist Manifesto, he said, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of of class struggles. And the end can only be attained by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Now consider what authors Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo say about this binary division in their book that is popular now called Is Everyone Really Equal? You may recognize that name, Robin D'Angelo. She also wrote a book called White Fragility. She says, for every social group, there is an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. Consequently, sexism, racism, classism, and heterosexism are specific forms of oppression. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. Now, I don't want to mislead you to believe that critical theory as we see it today is Marxism, is classical Marxism. Though some have called it cultural Marxism, the theory has evolved a great deal since the 18th century political philosophy. We, to see this, we're going to leave Karl Marx to history, and we're going to move ahead into 1930s Germany. After Karl Marx died in 1883, his political philosophy endured in the volumes of his writings, and they were read widely. Marxism infiltrated the United States on the cusp of the United States' own industrial age, when in 1851, remember the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848, so this is three years after Marx had fully espoused his political theory. In 1851, the New York Daily Tribune asked Marx to be their European political correspondent, contracting him to write two articles a week. Over the next 10 years, Marx contributed nearly 500 articles, giving pure Marxist ideology a widespread distribution in the United States. This was the first major foray of Marxism into American political thought. The second did not occur until much later, and that's what takes us back to 1930s Germany. In 1923, a German philosopher named Karl Grunberg founded a school committed to the study of social theory and critical philosophy at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. 
Founded in the Weimar Republic during the interwar years, the Frankfurt School brought together intellectuals, academics, political dissidents, dissatisfied with the contemporary socioeconomic systems of capitalism, fascism, and communism. After all, those systems were all economic theories that had failed, or they seemed to be failing. These Frankfurt intellectuals proposed that economic theories were inadequate to explain the chaos on the European continent. The communist utopia promised by classical Marxism had never materialized. Capitalism was no, of no appeal to them either. To these German academics, free enterprise was in reality exploitative, alienating, unstable, unsustainable, and inefficient, creating massive economic inequality. It was degrading the environment and was anti-democratic. That's how they viewed capitalism. The Frankfurt School determined that it was not economies that needed to be revolutionized, but rather entire social systems. But instead of rejecting Marxism outright, the Frankfurt School even advertised itself as a Marxist research center. Instead of rejecting Marxism, the school rebranded Marxism and synthesized it with philosophy and psychology. They used the psychology of Sigmund Freud and the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, Marx, and Engels. The product was a new discipline that critiqued society for the purpose of revealing and challenging power structures. They called this discipline critical theory. In the words of Max Horkheimer, the director of the Frankfurt School after Grunberg, and the man who coined the term critical theory, he described the theory as seeking to liberate be human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. But these circumstances were decidedly not consequences of individual choices or behaviors. No, it was societal structures, capitalism, or the family, or the church, for example, and cultural assumptions, racism, and religion that enslaved human beings. Now, while I do not agree, either philosophically or practically, with critical theory, and I may be accused of being overly charitable here, the development of critical theory as first espoused by the Frankfurt School was a relatively honest attempt to grapple with some serious issues of their day. As I've already mentioned, the communist utopia prophesied by Marx had not manifested itself. And as you can imagine, the Marxist ac academics of the Frankfurt School were militantly opposed to capitalism. But again, these were all economic problems. And the Frankfurt School was searching for ideological answers that would address this new wave of fascism that was sweeping onto the scene. The Frankfurt School was seeking to make sense of a world that allowed for a man like Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party to rise to power. And you can see how relevant this continental threat was to these academics. First, the founders of the Frankfurt School were in Germany and thus in close proximity to the Nazi Wehrmacht, the war machine. But secondly, they were avowed Marxists and thus rivals to this National Socialist Party that was competing with them for the soul of Germany. But thirdly, and perhaps of greatest concern, was that all the founders of the Frankfurt School were Jewish. So you can imagine in 1930s Germany, they were keenly affected by Hitler's genocidal rampage across the continent. These were the conditions that prodded the Frankfurt School to move out of Nazi Germany the school briefly settled in Geneva, Switzerland, but by 1935, it found a more welcoming home 
at Columbia University in New York City. This was the second major foray of Marxism into the United States. But this time, it found its footing in academia. And it would be from academia that it would infiltrate, infiltrate America's education system and win the hearts and minds of millions of students. Though the school was eventually reestablished in Frankfurt, West, or West Germany in 1953, the 20-plus years that it remained in the United States enabled it to assert its influence and gain widespread acceptance among the academy. In fact, many of the original members of the Frankfurt School never went back to West Germany. They stayed at Columbia, while others moved west and landed at the University of California, Berkeley. And from here, the rest is, as they say, history. Indeed, we could spend a lot of time here and trace the influence of critical theory in American academia. But for the purpose of seeing critical theory through the eyes of American Christianity, we need to leave the historical narrative of critical theory and instead consider the theory on its own merits. To best understand critical theory and what it is, we have to understand that the manifestations of critical theory that we see today were not exactly the political or social leanings of the first generation of the Frankfurt School. But as Richard Weaver once said in his book by the same title, ideas have consequences. And critical theory has had its consequences. In fact, the consequences of critical theory are logical, though perhaps unintended. Where Karl Marx saw class conflict as the center of gravity for the development of human societies, the Frankfurt School replaced class with ideology. And where classical Marxism applied a template for action, revolution for the purpose of particular objective, the destruction of the proletariat and the emancipation of the bourgeoisie, critical theory made no claim to the universality of absolute truth. In other words, there was no object objective. There could be no objective to it. Everything was subjective. Even the theory itself was subjective. So for Marxism, the concept of struggle was maintained, but the idea of class and the idea of measurable, observable results, the Marxist utopia, was rejected. In the place of class, the critical theorist posited the oppressed. And in the place of objectivity, the theorist posited subjective realism. Still, critical theory at the mid-20th century is not like what we are seeing in the 21st century. This is because... In the 1960s, critical theory and postmodernism united, and that is what we see today. Now, who's to say? Did postmodernism affect critical theory, or did critical theory evolve into postmodernism? These are difficult questions to answer, but we can say that what we are seeing in the social construct of American identity politics is this offspring of this union between critical theory and postmodernism. This brings me to my second objective this evening, to provide a broad overview of critical theory. Now, I think we need to remind ourselves of what exactly postmodernism is. And I will endeavor to give you a definition. But like someone once said, the more you dogmatically talk about what postmodernism is, the more likely it is that you do not know what you're talking about. Postmodernist Judith Butler says it like this. If we define postmodernism, it wouldn't really be postmodern anymore. This is because postmodernism, by definition, is subjective. So as soon as I objectively define it, 
then it ceases to be subjective, which is what postmodernism is. This is partly because postmodernists rarely explain themselves clearly, and partly because of the inerrant contradictions and inconsistencies of a way of thought which denies a stable reality or reliable knowledge to exist. But this is not helpful for us at all. This evening, we all need to at least be thinking of the same thing when we use the term postmodern. So let me quickly introduce you to the French philosopher who took up the mantle of uniting postmodernism with critical theory. The first philosopher is Jean-Francois Lyotard. Lyotard coined the term postmodern in his 1979 book, The Postmodern Condition. He defined po the postmodern condition as incredulity towards meta-narratives. Incredulity towards meta-narratives. I got it. A meta-narrative is a grand story. The word comes from combining the Greek word meta, meaning beyond, and narrative, story. What Lyotard was defining was a lack of belief in societal norms. He said everything should be questioned and ultimately replaced with not a meta-narrative, but localized narratives. Individual experience is the only source of truth. So if you feel you have experienced something, then it is true. Perception really is reality. The second French philosopher is Michel Foucault. Foucault developed Lyotard's concept of postmodernism further. He said, if you have a claim upon truth, it may be true or false, but that misses the point. You have to interrogate the power dynamic that allows someone the authority to make that claim. In other words, everything we have been told about anything is only because someone had the power to say it. The third French philosopher, Jacques Derrida. Derrida introduced the concept of deconstruction, and he too argued for cultural constructivism and cultural and personal relativism. He focused even more explicitly, though, on language and literature. Derrida's best-known pronouncement, there is no outside text, he said, relates to his rejection of the idea that words refer to, he, he rejected the idea that words refer to anything straightforward. Rather, there are only contexts without any center of absolute anchoring. What he was saying is that when you read, what you read only has value to the reader, and it means whatever he or she wants it to mean, and it is your context, not the context of the text, but the context of the reader that delivers the meaning. Therefore, the author of a text is not the authority on its own meaning. The reader or listener makes their own equally valid meaning and every text engenders infinitely new contexts. Lyotard, Foucault, and Derrida are just three of the founding fathers of postmodernism. Though they were French, they all lectured throughout the United States, and their ideas and themes influenced American theorists who took up their postmodernism and applied it to an increasingly diverse range of disciplines within the social sciences and humanities. So in sum, postmodernism teaches that there should be a distrust of the grand story because those stories were manufactured by those in power. The individual determines what is true and is aided by deconstructing the sources of power to determine his or her own truth. 
James Lindsay, the author of the book Cynical Theories, a book where he and Helen Pluckrose provide a tremendous critique of critical theory, summarize it nicely. He says, postmodernism is the belief that any claim upon truth is an application of power. In other words, you can only claim something is true if you have the power to do so. But let's not get bogged down here. We must move on. Now that you have a history of critical theory, to include how it has joined forces with postmodernism, and I hope, maybe, have a better understanding of what critical theory is, let's look at a biblical response to critical theory. And to do this, we are going to consider what I think are three biblical violations of critical theory and then measure those violations against Scripture. First, critical theory's subjective realism denies the objectivity, the objective sufficiency of Scripture. In his letter to the church at Galatia, Paul marveled that the church was so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." As we said before, so now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. Does critical theory really teach another gospel? Hearing it in their own words is helpful. Union Theological Seminary posted a Twitter thread in response to the recent statement on social justice and the gospel. Their very first statement was this, and I quote, This is Union Theological Seminary. We deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible because it reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. But how do you determine which is which? Which is God's truth and which is human sin and prejudice? To which they explain, and I quote again, biblical scholarship and critical theory help us to discern which messages are God's. It is critical theory that becomes then the authority, not only for determining what God's word says, but what God's word is. Anytime you have to go outside of scripture to determine what scripture is, you are taking that word of God and subjecting it to another authority, and you are denying the sufficiency of scripture. Unless we think that Union Theological Seminary is just misapplying critical theory, remember what Lyotard rejected. Remember what Lyotard said when he rejected the straightforwardness of language. Words mean what readers want them to mean. Their their context is the authority. When applied to Scripture, postmodernism and critical theory deny that Scripture is sufficient. They deny that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. 
the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. This is a clear articulation of one of the greatest Reformation era solas, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. In sum, the Scripture alone provides all that is necessary for life and godliness. Critical theory denies the sufficiency of Scripture. But not only does critical theory deny the sufficiency of Scripture, secondly, critical theory denies a biblical construct of humanity. It does this in two ways. First, it denies the imago Dei of humanity. One of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible is found in Genesis 1.27. The passage gives meaning and dignity to human life. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. The theological term for this is imago Dei, the image of God. Rather, critical theory claims that humans are created by the social constructs into which they are born. In critical theory, persons are judged by the color of their skin, by their gender, or by their economic status. They are not individuals accountable to a holy God, but they are insignificant members of a broader social construct. Second, critical theory denies the depravity of man. In one breath, they can deny that man is in the image of God, but in the second, they deny that man is depraved. But their reasoning for doing both is the same. If humans are only a product of the meta-narrative, then they cannot be held individually responsible. But this is counter to the biblical truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our solidarity is not in our combined social structures, but in the fact that we have all a naturally fallen state. We all share in the need for a Savior. That is our solidarity. I like the wisdom of Jim Earls who said it in his book, Too Black for White and Too White for Black. He said, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. For by one man, sin entered into the world. And so that death came upon all men, for all have sinned. But critical theory logically denies these issues of solidarity of all humans. They deny the imago Dei, the fallen state, and the need for redemption. I like how Neil Shenvey, a Christian apologist who has done a great deal of study on critical theory, I like how he puts it. He says critical theory insists on solidarity and oppression, while Christianity insists on solidarity and redemption. So critical theory denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Critical theory denies a biblical construct of humanity. But third and finally, critical theory denies the sovereignty of God. Critical theory is built on the binary premise that there are only oppressors and oppressed people in this world. But this adversarial relationship between individuals that is, is profoundly antithetical to Christianity. We all stand alike before, before God in need of a Savior. Nevertheless, critical theory depends on crucially on perpetuating this identity into oppressor and oppressed. And because if all humans beings share some fundamental identity marker, the foundations of oppressed and oppressor upon which critical theory depends would come crashing down. Man is not called because of his race, 
class, or gender, man has fallen regardless of skin color, regardless of economic status, regardless of sex. And this is where it denies the sovereignty of God. Critical theory assumes that power imbalances are inherently bad and that they should be dismantled. But this claim is incorrect because God's infinite power is not only unassailable, it is unequivocally good. Yet many Christians still assume that human power imbalances are inherently bad. But if we accept this idea, what is our response to these claims? Should we reject capitalism because it perpetuates economic privilege? More importantly, should we reject male leadership in our church or in the home because it perpetuates male privilege? Should we reject traditional marriage because it perpetuates heteronormativity? Should we reject the connection between sex and gender because it perpetuates cisgender privilege? Should we stop preaching about biblical morality or about the exclusivity of Christ so that non-Christians aren't marginalized? Insisting that all power imbalances are bad will have serious repercussions on our theology. But God, in His sovereignty, He established these structures. He established marriage with the man as the head of the home. He established marriage between one man and one woman because that was His design. He established the objective paths of righteousness for his namesake because he and only he can determine the way and command that we walk in it. But critical theory rejects the power of God and instead promotes a binary division that is built on hegemony. Critical theory rejects hegemonic power or what is the power to control or dominate. It sees singular narratives and a singular set of values and norms as inherently oppressive, but not... but. Is not the Bible a discourse on hegemony from start to finish? Man was told to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. This is certainly an affront to critical theories, discipline of climate justice. But more importantly, God has all the power. For by him were all things created, and by him all things consist. That means there is only one true sovereign, with only one true story of religion, with one true story of morality, with one true story of sexuality, with one true story of race, with one true story of gender, and so forth. We are all created in the image of God. God, in His sovereignty, is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the ultimate power with complete objective truth. God, the Son, is the way the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by Him. There is no amount of revolution against His power that will ever usurp His authority. Nevertheless, do you recall what the critical theorists want to do after they divulge society from all power structures? Remember, they want to replace those grand narratives, those meta-narratives, with individual narratives. That is, they want Foucault's lived experience to become the authority. Truth is not objective. Only what you perceive to be true is objective. Never mind that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Forget that there is none righteous, no, not one. Disregard that we ask God to search us and know our thoughts to see if there be any wicked way in us. Our reference is skewed. We cannot be trusted. But when we set ourselves up to be the authority, when we claim to be God, we do err not knowing the truth. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we must leave it here. Our time is certainly gone. 
But what should we do with this information? How do we take it and walk circumspectly, redeeming the time? But that's the challenge before us. And so much more can be said and needs to be said. We could talk about how critical theory has spawned critical race theory, intersectionality, climate justice, and the whole laundry list of social issues I have mentioned throughout. And perhaps at a future time, we can look closer at how critical theory has transformed identity politics and what the Bible has to say about all that. But tonight, we've just laid the foundation of those social issues that are daily in our social media. And for tonight, allow me to conclude with this. I've said a lot of words this evening. I pray they have been truthful and within the bounds of Scripture. But I think Colossians 3, 10 through 15, succinctly describes how we should live in our present world. It was as objectively true for the church at Colossae as it is for us today in Chesapeake, Virginia. Paul puts this all into perspective for us. Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to live in this society. Help us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Father, help us to recognize that there are many antichrists in the world. But Father, I pray that we will lift up our eyes because our redemption does draw nigh. Bless us as we leave here. Help us to return safely to our homes. And Lord, we look forward on Sunday to coming back where we will celebrate mothers We'll dedicate some babies, Lord. And I thank you, though, for this church and for its stand on righteousness. Bless us as we leave, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.